Welcome back to Lost in Citations. Today's guest is Dr. Jennifer Larson Hall, Associate Professor of English at the University of Kitakyushu. Dr. Larson Hall, how are you? I'm good. Thank you, Jonathan. And it's okay if I call you Jennifer. I feel like I need to be please. very professional in the, oh. in the beginning. Okay, well, please call me Jennifer. I <laughs> definitely prefer that. Well, you've earned it. I've just started down my path as a PhD student, and I'm I'm 40, and I'm seeing how <laughs> I, I think I'm looking forward to the time where I can say no, 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 no. Please call me Jonathan. But I would appreciate it if someone started out calling me Doctor. Is that is that the way you feel after all the hard work you put into it? Um, yeah, I get. I guess so. I mean, um, if I, in my graduate program we called our professors by their first names mm -hmm. so i guess i feel like if someone's a graduate student um you know that we're all colleagues so that's why we should call each other by our first names but you know what it's really uh that's variable i've found out a lot of my colleagues at kitakushi university asked their students to call them by their first names the undergraduates and i was uh in the united states this year on an exchange at Old Dominion University, and I couldn't even get my graduate students to call me by their first, by my first name. Mm. Um, they were very formal. So um, apparently in Britain, it's really normal to call your professors by their first names, um, even as an undergraduate. But I feel like that's not usual in America. And even sometimes in graduate school, you don't call your professor by their first name. Old Dominion University in Virginia? Yeah. Oh, cool. I'm from Virginia. Oh, okay. Yeah, I, I ended up living in Chesapeake. Oh, cool. Two of my kids. Small world. Well, uh, today's chapter is from the text, not the textbook, the book, Teaching English at Japanese Universities, a new handbook. And I actually interviewed uh, a colleague of yours, uh, Jeff Stewart. Yeah. And, uh, but we didn't talk, we didn't talk about uh, this chapter. We talked about, uh, a publication he just did about vocabulary, but okay. I also interviewed, uh, John Wiltshire who did chapter five of this book. So uh -huh. for people that are just checking out the show now, you can go back and listen to John and Jeff's episodes on, uh, the, the website, which is uh, lostincitations.com. Um, but anyway, so I've actually heard about you before from from Jeff, and it's uh -huh. it's actually kind of an apt uh, introduction to this episode because I was so lucky to meet Jeff before he he left for Tokyo. I had mm -hmm. I had one year with him, and I, I joked about it on the episode with him that I was wondering if the reason he left to go to Tokyo was because of me, because <laughs> in the beginning when I first met him, he said, "Listen, if you have any question whatsoever, don't hesitate and ask." And I think I really wore out that welcome. I, I must have asked him a thousand questions. And then when I started thinking about uh, taking a, you know, doing a PhD, he really went through all these variables that are covered in this chapter. And your name actually came up as an option where he was saying, look, there, there's, a, there's a great teacher at Kitakushu, um, Jennifer, and she could be your advisor. We were talking about the options of whether... Mm -hmm. Should you should you do a remote PhD? Should you do yeah. a PhD in Japan? Should you do a PhD over overseas? Um, and then your name actually came up as a as a possible advisor, and mm -hmm. I ended up going uh, going a different route. I'm I'm studying at Macquarie University uh, rem mm -hmm. remote, but um, yeah, it's it, it, it's kind of a, it's kind of a small world that I I knew of your name. And I was really excited to talk to you today. Uh, this is a great, really easy uh, chapter to read. Lots of great anecdotes. And Good. then I just kind of looked up your Google Scholar <laughs> right before we started. And then I got really nervous because you, <laughs> you wrote a book about uh, statistics using SPSS. Maybe that's why he recommended because I'm doing a sort of a, a research project with heavy statistics. Okay. Is, is your focus in statistics? Um, yeah, well, that's definitely one of the things I would say that I'm known for. Um, I wrote the book, uh, because I was in an English department at a university in the United States, um, North Texas university, what was it called? University of North Texas. Mm -hmm. And, um, because they were in the English department, they said, well, you sh you need a book for tenure. And I was like, 
uh, I got articles and they're like, you need a book. So I thought about what kind of book I would want to write. And, um, I had always been interested in statistics. I was, a, I started out as a math major in college as undergraduate. So, wow. um, so I just thought, you know, there's not statistics is hard to understand. And it's even harder when the examples don't come from your field. So I wanted to make something in second language acquisition that would just help make it a little bit easier, but it's still hard. Uh, I'm sure my book is good reading for pe putting people to sleep at night. <laughs> now, I'm looking at your bio here. You, yeah. have, you have a master's in Russian. Mm-hmm. What? How did that? How did that come? It seems like you're doing very, very difficult things. Statistics <laughs> in Russian seem. I mean, Japanese, I guess, is also extremely difficult. Um, just from the outside looking in, do you? Yeah. Do you do you pursue things that are going to cause you stress or are these things that excite oh. you? <laughs> you know, um, like I said, I was I was doing math. I was going to be an engineer at first because I liked math. Um, then I started taking Russian because I wanted to get a Ph.D. And the course catalog said if you're going to get a Ph.D. in math, you should know Russian, French or German. And I yeah, I guess I just wanted the challenge. I said, oh, Russian. All right. Um, something different. And I started studying Russian and to me it was very mathematical. Mm. Um, and I just fell in love with the Russian and I said, okay, yeah, I kept math as my minor, but I said, I'm going to, I'm going to get a PhD in Russian linguist. And I liked linguistics, obviously the, the language, uh, the language analysis part of it. Did you have to write sort of a mini dissertation for your master's? Or a long paper? What was the final project for your, your master's in Russian? No, I didn't. No, I had to take uh, some I had to take some tests. Tests, um, okay. Like proficiency yeah, tests? Like proficiency tests for okay. the master's. And then I switched over. Then I saw, then I decided I wouldn't get a PhD in Russian because I saw a guy ahead of me who was so good at Russian and, and, and a couple other Slavic languages. And he was not able to find a job. Oh. And I thought, oh, it's just not enough, you know, not enough jobs teaching Russian. Um, it's true that you don't take Russian if you want to get an easy A. Mm. Um, so, um, so I was had been taking classes in the in the general linguistics department, and I thought, well, if I switch to applied linguistics, I can still study Russian, um, but I can, you know, do Spanish. I spoke Spanish too, and um, and then I went to Japan with my husband, so I spoke Japanese, and I was like, you know, I can just make this wider. So I did a, I got my master's in TESOL, and for that I had to take tests too. I didn't have to write a dissertation at the master's level. Why did you choose the University of Pittsburgh? They just gave me the best deal for a TA ship. Oh, I see. Okay. Yeah. Where, where are you from originally? I grew up in Wenatchee, Washington, which is a small town in the middle of Washington State that lots of cherries and apples come from. Okay. And so then <laughs> you moved all the way across the country. Yeah, well, well I, I did my uh, undergraduate at BYU, mm -hmm. um, met my husband there, and then, yeah, I was ready for graduate school and uh, applied to a few different places in Pittsburgh. Uh, one of them was University of Washington, but they weren't going to give me a, a TA ship at the time. So. so I'm looking at your timeline here. You started your Ph.D. at the University of Pittsburgh in 1994, uh -huh. but you got your first experience teaching at a, at a university in Japan in 1999. So what's the, what's the timeline there? Did you, were you, did, was it your idea to come to Japan to do research for your PhD or was that, were those, were those separate or were they connected? Um, the Japan thing was really my husband. So he, he's a Japanese historian oh. and uh, he, when I was still doing my master's, well, I think I'd switched to general uh, to, to linguistics, applied linguistics, but, um, he had a scholarship to come to Fukuoka and I thought, well, you know, I'll take a year and a half off and be with him and I'll learn Japanese. Oh, okay. And that's what I did. And, uh, I thought, I thought I was really good at Japanese at the time after a year and a half. <laughs> I was not, <laughs> um, but then I went back and, uh, f basically finished up my classes 
And then he got a Fulbright to study in Japan. And so I uh, got a job teaching at a university in Japan, Kanda Gaigo Daigaku in Tokyo. Okay. So is that what you're thinking about? Was that 1999? Uh, yeah, that's right. Yeah. Okay. So, all right. So the, the chapter is from the book, Teaching English at Japanese Universities. And the chapter yeah. is called Making a Career of University Teaching in Japan, Getting and Keeping a Full-Time Job. Now, your story is already really interesting. Now, I kind of <laughs> want to start with one of the cool parts of the chapter, the anecdote about where you're working for a private Eikaiwa, sounds like. Now, what's the timeline here? Was that... Well, that was, yeah, that was the first time we came over to Japan when I was just learning Japanese. And my husband was attending classes at Kyushu University. And I just wanted to learn Japanese. Mm -hmm. But, you know, we could use a little more income. So I looked around. I went downtown and, you know, found an Eikaiwa job uh, down in Dezaifu. Okay. Um, you know, just like a little private place. And, uh, and I just started teaching there. So I, I was, I, I had already taken some classes in TESOL, so I knew a little something, but. That was your first experience te teaching Japanese students? Teaching Japanese. Yeah. Yeah. Because I'd had a TA ship. I taught Russian first. And then when I switched over to the linguistics department in Pittsburgh, I taught ESL there. Yeah, <laughs> this is a great. This is a great chapter. It's really well written. You well, thanks. You said to make extra money, I work three long days a week in a window. <laughs> <A> wi <laughs> Sorry, windowless, a windowless yeah. room, <laughs> teaching yeah. English to all ages, from two-year-olds who cried at the sight of me to grandmas who wanted to travel and speak a little English before they went. I I can empathize with that. I've also taught at Akiwas. Yeah. I, I mean, I luckily. There were rooms that had windows. Sometimes there were rooms that didn't. You were lucky. Um, yeah. But yeah, the grandmas <laughs> that want to travel, those are always the best. Yeah. They're yeah. They work hard. Yeah. I mean, they're serious. And they're fun. They, they're yeah. They give you like a yeah. I remember I was teaching at an Akaiwa and I was teaching children, and for some reason the lesson was being observed. I was teaching mm -hmm. in a room where it was there wasn't a, a window outside, but there was sort of a glass window that looked inside. And there was, there was, there were, let's see, three, three, three students in the classroom, very small classroom. There was three parents peering into the glass bowl mm. and there was two observers watching. <laughs> I've never sweated more in my life. Oh my it, gosh. Yeah. But yeah. You said you started something called the Mana Hobai? Mana, <laughs> Mana, Mana, Mana Hodai. Manabi Hodai. Manabi well, Hodai. The... <laughs> That's taken off from the Japanese Tabe Hodai, right? Right. So yeah, the the owner did that. The that was the owner's good idea. Uh, okay. I thought it was a good idea. Yeah. Uh, I just thought I should profit from it since I was her only teacher, and so, uh, she didn't want to let me share in the rewards, so I quit. I like I love that. So she said no. <laughs> she said no, and I quit. And then you started your own Manabi Hodai. Yeah, my husband and I just took little flyers. We went to a nearby junior college, said, look, you can study all the Japanese you want for a month a month. And I mean, all we had to do was get 17 people to sign up to be the same as my uh, previous income. So, but I didn't have to sit in a windowless room all day. I, I got to say, uh, for for my own experience, th th that's kind of yeah. a, an important thing for this, this book chapter, how to get a job at a Japanese, Japanese university. I think there's a lot of people that come to Japan and stay at the same sort of job mm. like this and never leave just because they're kind of afraid to say no. Yeah. And I quit. Right. So it, right. I mean, <clears throat> that's great advice. Sometimes you need to say, no, I quit. And you can find yeah. some people are kind of afraid to do that. Um, how, how can you give people advice to maybe? It's strange because I've I've left that the Akaiwa business right. and I knew I could do better, and yeah. I know some of those people are still going to sort of stay there. And the, you know, I I don't think I'm necessarily any better than them. I just went out and got the masters and tried right. to do better. Why Why do you think some people sort of stay comfortable and don't really m move on? Um, I. I don't know. I, I think a lot of people really enjoy teaching English. They probably haven't had a lot of experience. They get here. I mean, and 
Japanese people, you know, if you can get them into a class where they are, where they are happy, I think it's kind of an enjoyable thing to do. Mm. Um, so my guess would be a lot of people just enjoy it and they, you know, if you don't speak Japanese, it's pretty intimidating to think about, um, going off and doing anything on your own. Right. I got it. So that could be part of it too, because it's hard to learn Japanese. All right. So then I'm looking at your timeline. Then you go Wait, to... can I tell you a story? Yeah, yeah go for it. Yeah, go for I'm it. Tell you a story that um, when I was looking, I can't remember when it was, but at one point I, uh, um, I applied for a job at one of those big A Kaiwas. It's one of the ones that went under eventually, but what were they called? Um, you know, they, were, they had lots of ads. Is it Nova? Like Nova or something like that, right? And I went there for a job interview, and they did a group interview. I don't know if you ever did anything like this, but they did a group interview. So we like did presentations in front of the whole group of people, which was fine. Mm-hmm. Um, but then they took us into a room by ourselves, and they said, "Why don't you tell me what the other people did wrong?" Whoa. And I was like, "Oh, that." is a nasty thing to ask someone to say in an interview. I felt really bad about that and I didn't get the job. Uh, so maybe I wasn't, I don't know what, I don't know what they were looking for, uh, in that kind of criticism, but I'm glad Nova's gone or, or whoever it was, you know, geo or whatever they were. The thing I love about this article is it really resonates with me that there's sometimes where you have a job and some things just don't feel right. And mm-hmm. then you say, you know what, I can do better. And it, it's you've got all the way to the point where you're at a tenured, you know, what, probably one of the best jobs you can have in Japan. And, right. You know, it's a really great job. And yeah. it's, it's, it's very interesting that, that yeah, I, I, it definitely resonates with me. I feel like I had, I had enough of a bad experience at one of the jobs that pushed me <laughs> to get a master's degree. And mm-hmm. I've told people this before. If the, if the job was maybe 5% better, I probably wouldn't have taken the leap. And mm. said, you know what? I'm maybe I'm not making so much money, but it's enough. Yeah. But because I had like a certain amount of friction that I really did not like, it definitely motivated me. It sounds mm. like, it sounds like you were already motivated at this point, and you're a little bit different than me in, in that aspect. Like I said, I I've, I'm I'm doing this PhD later in life. I did I finished mm. my master's when I was you know 37 or something. Okay. Okay. So you were already, you know, I guess it's easy for you to say, no, this is this is you know, this isn't the job for me. You know, you were already kind of on a tenure track even before you came to Japan. Well, I mean, I was telling you, I was planning to get a PhD even as an undergrad. So that was, I just knew I liked studying and I wanted to get a PhD. Uh, so I was planning on being a teacher of something. Right. Um, and the Japanese, I mean, I, I think a lot of the people I meet in Japan, they were fascinated by Japan first mm-hmm. and they came over here. Right. Um, and then, you know, they find, OK, I really like living here. And how can I get a better job? Well, I'll go out and study some more. And that's what we talk about in our book. Right. right. Usually it's like people who come here that way. Um, I mean, I didn't do that. I came to Japan only because my husband was coming. Um I definitely became very fascinated by the culture and, and like living here. Cause that's what I'm, you know, I'm here permanently now, but, uh, yeah, that, yeah. So yeah, I kind of am coming at it from a little bit different angle from a lot of people. I and think it, it's also similar if I have the timeline, correct. I, so I came to Japan for a year in 2007 and uh-huh. I, I kind of went through, you know, that, uh, culture shock, Yep. You know, that little chart they make where you go up and way down and then back up to sort of middle. Uh, and right. then I left and I and I was gone for over 10 years. Now, it sounds right. like looking at your timeline, it looks like you started at the University of North Texas right. in 2003. Now, was that just because of the way things turned out or or was it because you were kind of sick of Japan and you wanted to take a break? Or was it, you know, just because of that's the that was the next step in your career? Um, so I guess I always thought I would get a job at a Jap, I mean, at an American university Uh that, that was my plan. Um, since my husband teaches Japanese history, it didn't ever seem like he would be able to teach Japanese history in Japan being an American Uh because 
Japanese people can teach Japanese history in Japan. Right. Um, so, so yeah. So when I taught in Japan, that was always kind of just like a temporary, I saw it as a temporary job, um, until my husband got his PhD and then he got that and we were, then we were at the university of North Texas, but he was, I was on the tenure track and he was, uh, an adjunct. And, um, so, he found a job teaching Japanese, teaching Japanese history in Japan at Kyushu University mm -hmm. in 2009. He applied for that and he got that. So I said, OK, well, your turn to, you know, to lead off here. And so I basically I followed him at that point to what, Japan, 2010. What was it? What was it like going going from Japan to, to the University of North Texas culturally wise? What was that like? Um, do you mean the general culture or you mean like the university culture? Um, maybe a little bit of a, a little bit of both, because <laughs> I'm wondering which was the harder culture shock going from America to Japan the first time or going from Japan back to Texas. Cause people have different views on reverse culture shock and culture shock yeah. and those kind of things. Yeah. Well, you know, before I ever went to Japan, I lived for a year and a half in Chile, wow. and I I got to go to Russia for two months, which isn't really long enough to have too much culture shock. But um, I had lived in other countries, so I was kind of – I was thinking I wouldn't have culture shock when I came to Japan because – you know, I'd already gotten over thinking, you know, it's like you get outside of your culture and you go, okay, there's good things and there's bad things about every culture, including my own, mm -hmm. you know? And so I really didn't think I would have any culture shock coming to Japan, but, um, I did. Yeah. Because it was like way more different from American culture than Chilean or Russian culture had been from American culture. So I think that was probably my biggest culture shock was the first time I came to Japan. Mm. Well, what, what was it like comparing the two, your, your tenure track? Well, I guess that's getting, that's getting ahead of ourselves. All right. So then you, you came back to, to Kyushu because you're, you're for the main reason, because your husband, your husband got a job at Kyushu, Kyushu yeah. university. Is yeah. he still teaching there? Yeah. Yeah, he still teaches there. We've been here 11 years now. That was 11 years ago. And um, I had I had four kids. Um, uh, actually, we had three kids, and then we adopted another one when we got here. All our kids are adopted. Um, but anyway, I had little kids, and uh, I taught one more year for the University of North Texas online. And then, um, and then I looked around, and I applied for the job at Kyushu Sangyo. Um, but there, it was 10 coma for a full-time job. And I just didn't think I could do that with my little kids. Right. So I was teaching for them part-time. I think I taught five coma okay. a semester and I did that for a little, maybe just for one year. And then I don't know. I don't know if I ever took a year off. I can't really remember, but, um, but while they were little, I wanted to take it a little more easy, but, um, and that's where As you the, met Jeff. That's where I met Jeff. Yeah. And then, the, exactly. and then, and then you went to Kyushu University. Okay, that's right. I was at Kyushu on a Gaikokujin Kyoshi, but that's you know that was only like I want to say maybe three or four coma a semester because mm -hmm. it was mostly graduate students. So that was that was still not you know like that didn't feel like a terribly full time job. Mm. <laughs> Now your your husband might know the other the other in, so I do the interviews with uh, Chris Haswell. Uh huh. Who so your husband might know Chris Haswell. He does. Um, I I do kind of the interviews from my my slant as you know someone who's starting their PhD, uh -huh. and he's already got a he's tenured at at QDI as well. Okay. Okay. Um, so it's a small world. They might they might know each other. Yeah, and maybe. Th and then you and then you went to Fukuoka Jogakuen. Is that a woman's university? Right. That's is, right. Yeah. Is that the one near Kyusandai? No, that is way down um, below, like the the belt that goes the the highway belt that goes around Fukuoka. It's a little bit south of that, on the south south part of the oh, belt. Okay. All right, and that's the woman's university you mentioned in the chapter. 
They must be. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Only target that one was university. And then, uh, and then you got the job at Kitakyushu. And yeah. That you started as tenure in in 2016. You entered right. as tenure. Yeah. Yeah. So um, I don't know. It's, I don't really know where to start. There, there. there I think. All right, there's a. It might just be kind of a random thing. I, I guess there, there's a few things that stuck out. Okay. Um, on page three, you you said something that I'd never thought about before. You said you should probably check the finances and Hensachi ranking mm-hmm. of the yeah. rural college you're applying to online. Yeah. Uh, can you explain that and maybe how why that's important and how people can check that information? Where they can check that information? Okay. Well. Um, this chapter was co-written with Jeff Stewart, and that's his part. Oh, okay. So I'm afraid I wouldn't know how to check the Hensachi myself, although uh, my daughter's Juku knows it pretty well. You could probably ask any Juku. Oh, okay. um, <laughs> it must be somewhere. Um, but I guess the point is, if it was a very, very small place in a out-of-the-way um in an out-of-the-way town, it may go under. The first chapter of the book is talking about how with Japan's declining population, there was a lot of prediction that um, universities would, you know, would kind of collapse. There wouldn't be enough students going to university, and so a lot of universities would shut down. But that actually has not turned out to be true. In fact, uh, just they've they've actually gained population because more students than ever are going to the universities. Right. Um, so, uh, so, so, I mean, probably you're okay at most places, but I guess Jeff just wanted to warn people, just, just check and make sure, you know, before you take a job that you think is going to be forever, that your university is, you know, probably not something that's going to go down if, you know, if enrollments should go down a little bit. How did you, how did you come about writing this chapter and how did you come about writing it with Jeff? Okay. Well, um, the editors, Chris, uh, Chris Carl Hale and Paul Wadden had, um, seen my book that's called second language acquisition myths. Mm -hmm. And, um, that's a book that talks about, it's basically a book, an introduction to second language acquisition. And, um, I I know that a few places in Japan, they use that in their graduate programs for introduction to SLA classes. And, and, um, just like this chapter, I put in, um, some anecdotes in the book and they liked that, um, they they told me they liked my writing style and so they thought they just thought of me for this chapter. Um, I tend to be really informal. Um, I've definitely had editors tell me to write in a more academic style, uh, but sometimes things just bore me and I like to make it more interesting with stories. Um, so, (laughs) so since they seem to be interested in that, um, I was happy to do that in this chapter. How did they pair you up with Jeff? Um, no, I chose Jeff. Oh, I see. Okay. Uh, They, they asked me to write the chapter and I agreed and, um, boy, I can't quite remember it now, but Jeff and Jeff and, um, Luke Fryer and I had been working on another article um, and I, I think maybe I mentioned this to Jeff and he said, Oh, I had, I wrote something up about doing that. And I was like, well, let's write a chapter together then. Cool. So were you, I guess you weren't at Jout last year because there was a, there was, there was kind of a round table discussion with different authors of this book. I they, was there. Were I you, think. Were you at that? Cause I don't, was rem- it I don't in remember. Osaka? You. What's that? Was it in Osaka? No. It was in um, oh. uh, Nagoya. Uh, well, I participated in something that was in Osaka. I'm sorry. I don't remember the name of it. Because the, the main convention, they had a few of the authors there. Jeff And Jeff was sitting at a table and Curtis okay. Kelly was sitting at a table. Mm. And a few – they had sort of a 
Yeah, it was kind of interesting, but I, I the reason I ask is I don't remember you. Mm, when, I, when, what month was it? Was it November? It was the Jout National. Oh, okay. So, I, see, I was in the U.S. this last year. Oh, okay. But it's cool. It's a great book, and I've been meaning to buy it it's for. Good. I've been yeah. meaning to buy it for a while, and uh, again, like I messaged you, it's 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 on the way. Um, yeah. So good. it's coming soon. Now you talked I, you talked about your writing style. I wouldn't mm-hmm. mind going through some of these these anecdotes because you were you were okay. very you're very candid. Uh, yeah. You had kind of a bad experience with one of your three year one of your part time contracts, uh, part time full time. I guess mm-hmm. we should we should back up. Uh, do you mind explaining the different contracts that you describe in the chapter? And you've you've had a lot of them, right? I I think I have. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, let's see. So we have the part time adjunct, and that's going to be somebody who just gets you know it could be probably three to five different classes at a, at universities and um, gets paid per class. Mm-hmm. So those kind of people usually work at several different universities to try to make a full-time career out of it. Um, there's the the full-time contract positions, like the Gai Kokujin Kyoshi position I had, um, which could be, in that case, was two or three years. Mm-hmm. Um, and you're teaching full-time. And the Gai Kokujin Kyoshis are actually quite good positions, quite high-paying, and uh, they paid... Both I had two, and both of them paid almost all of my rent as well. Wow! So that was really nice. Um, Jonathan, help me out. What What's else? The one, what then? What do I have? I just have go, joke, joking koshi because okay. I, I'm like on a three year three year contract, yeah. and then I can yeah. I can go to three years again, mm-hmm. and then two, and then two with benchmarks. In between each each contract, but I don't have any. I'm working at a private school. I don't. Right. Ha, I don't. I think we got a little bit of money this year mm-hmm. uh, to help with our rent, but I don't think, like mm-hmm. for example, the like you mentioned in the chapter, the thank you money for renting that wasn't covered. Yeah, moving costs weren't covered. Right. So you right. talk about the difference between working full time contract at a public university. Yeah. And full-time contract at a private university. Uh, I, so okay. But anyway, so this the, this this one story you told, I guess you're working full-time contract. You It sounded like you were on a three-year contract with the option. Was it the option to renew after three or was it three max and then you you had to renew every uh, year? Yeah, that was the Gai Kokujin Kyoshi position. Um, and they told me it was a two-year contract with the option for a third year, but everybody always stayed for the third year. And you, <laughs> you did not, I mean, this is great because a lot of these, sto- some of these stories have happened to me too. Yeah. Uh, where, you know, you don't get renewed and yeah. you had two reasons. You said, and they didn't tell me until December, which is past the point where you, I could apply Ugh. for jobs back in the U S. <sighs> That must have been very frustrating. Well, I had looked through I had looked through the the offerings and I had applied to two universities, exactly two universities that I thought, you know, looked like really good fits for me. Mm-hmm. But that was it. I mean, I would have applied to way more universities if I'd known they weren't going to renew me for the third year. You so you had no inkling that was coming? Nothing. They didn't say a word to me until December when they said uh, we're not going to renew you. <laughs> and they gave you so you had a big office, and yep. you were letting your husband share the office with you. Yeah. And then you said you didn't. They said that you didn't have enough students visiting you mm-hmm. at your office. Was that mm-hmm. like for for that, wait? But I thought you said that was a volunteer office hour that you set up. So yeah. I was a bit confused. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I was confused too. I was like, well, first of all, are you guys like, did you put a a, a camera on me? Like, why would you say students aren't visiting me? And second, I had like, you know, you have your office hours and hardly anybody comes. Mm -hmm. So I had told my students, I was like, look, you know, come to my office for lunch if you want. And I'm, you know, let's speak English as a chat. 
Um, and so some people would come to that. Um, so I was, conf- I was like, uh, what should I have been doing to have more students come to my office while you were observing me? weird. So, um, you know, and if there'd been a problem with my husband in the office, why wouldn't you have just told me that at the beginning? Like, Hey, you know, we really don't like your husband in your office. And I would have been, okay, no problem. Right. You know, so that's what I was going to ask you if, if, if that was something they had brought up before. No, not a bit. And so that's why I, I thought, okay, first of all, this is a position for a foreigner. So, how would you expect the foreigner to like know the rules of Japanese etiquette that they should follow if you're not going to tell them? Mm. And why would you, you know, punish them basically for not following them? <laughs> um, yeah. So I thought, well, there must, that those, those, those must be just be excuses. There must be another reason why they're not high, you know, why they're not renewing me. There's some other hidden reason that they're not telling me. Um, but I've since talked to the professor who was there, another foreign professor who was at that university at the time. And he's like, no, that was the real reasons. They, you know, they, and I was like, well, that's weird that they didn't tell me that it was a problem. Mm. So. Well, that's a, that's a tough moment. I mean, you, you kind of feel betrayed. And like you said, if you had fair warning, you could have applied to different places. How did you, how did you rebound from that? How did, how did that all work out after that? Did you have to um, take a year off or how did, how does that work? No. So I actually got a job offer at one of those places. That was the university of North Texas. Got it. So thank goodness. Right. I mean, mm. that was a relief, but was this the same place? I don't need to mention the name, but you do mention you do. Men, I think you do mention one of the the names in the chapter where you you didn't teach every day, and you were expected to come in on the days that you weren't teaching. Yeah, and that was that was an issue. Um, where that I thought was that was in, that, this, was in, that was Kanda in Tokyo. This was a while ago, right? Because I that think, was when my husband had the had the Fulbright. Because I, uh, I heard that Luke Fryer, I don't know him personally, he was mm-hmm. before my time, I heard that he's the one that sort of ensured that the teachers do not need to come in on the days they don't teach. So, uh. none, so none of us come in on Monday. Now, is this sort of a fairly new thing that was this, is this a new thing or, you know, did teachers have to fight for this back in the day or is it just at that school? You know, I have no idea. Um, so that would have been like, mm, Oh, I can't even remember 20, the dates. Now, it's but like 20 years ago. Yeah, 20 years ago at that university. And, um, and, and I mean, I couldn't – he said you know, to my face, you're just being a cultural imperialist. And later on, I found out the Japanese faculty do that all the time, right? I mean, Japanese faculty don't have to come to, to the university when they're not working. Um, so – Cultural uh, imperialism. I just heard the I just heard the phrase from from Chris Haswell because he does <laughs> he does linguistic studies and there's this phrase linguistic imperialism, mm-hmm. too. Which I I had cultural imperialism. So he that 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 doesn't make sense though if you said that the Japanese teachers are doing it as well. Did he well, say this to you in English? I didn't know that. I didn't know at the time. He just told me I was being a cultural imperialist because I said in America, uh, professors don't have to come to university when they're not teaching. Mm-hmm. And he said, you know, well, you're just assuming that American values will apply here at the Japanese university. He was Australian, the, the director then. Oh. Um, uh, so, you know, I was like, oh, 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 okay. You know, well, I, I mean, I, I first I believed him. I'm like, oh, I'm being a cultural imperialist. I, oh, but, um, <laughs> but I wasn't really. Um, I mean, I, I guess I was, but, uh. But that's not true in Japan. It's not true at all. I mean, plenty of professors do not come to the university when they're not working. Well, let's let's talk about Japanese ability because okay. th- this is one thing that you mentioned. If you want to get a tenure job, you you do need a PhD. You you might need to be a little bit careful about you know which degrees you choose. I kind of want to come back to that in a second. Okay. But Japanese ability is so important, and I and I got to say. From, from my own experience, I've seen in this past year alone three teachers without PhDs 
yeah. who have been offered tenured positions. Yeah. Um, and I think the, one of the main reasons is, is they have experience. They've lived in Japan for a long time. They mm-hmm. might have a Japanese husband or uh, wife. Yeah. And, um, and their Japanese ability is like an N2 or N1, abil- uh, N1 level. Uh, so it, it, it's weird because my Japanese isn't that great. I know at one point, at one point I need to really focus on it. Um, it's hard for me to study Japanese and work on, you know, publications in English. Um, so I sort of wanted to build on my own strengths, but now I know, oh my gosh, you need Japanese ability to get a tenure job. Um, how did you, how did you approach, you know, your Japanese, you know, ability and how did you manage you know doing the english academic publications and working on your job are you one of those people that can do many things at once or do you kind of are you all or nothing kind no, of I'm person just, jonathan i'm old um <laughs> so i've <laughs> just had a lot of time um when i first came to japan with my husband like i said i was in a a a, a academic program and i so i really didn't have anything to do besides learn japanese my first year and a half in japan where did you study yeah. at a at a at a no, Japanese no, no. school? Just, just on yourself? my own, just okay. on my own, right? I was with my husband. We were living in the foreign student dorm, and I just, you know, I had already I already knew Russian and Spanish, so I knew how to learn a language. Mm-hmm. So I just listened everywhere, tried to talk to people, um, and after a year and a half, I felt like I could talk to people. Um, like I said, though, I, I thought I was good at Japanese then, but I wasn't. But I but I came at it as a linguist thinking I'm not I don't need to read. I'll just I'll just learn how to speak. And mm-hmm. so that's what I focused on. Um, when I came back to Tokyo, I continued, you know, learning more and more about how to speak. And I felt pretty comfortable doing normal kinds of conversation. Um, then when we came back for my husband's job at Kudai, um, I, I thought, you know, well, it's time for me to learn how to read a little bit. Um, so I started studying at Kumon, like the kids stuff uh-huh. and got up to sixth grade. <laughs> how did you do that? Was that, was that online or do you have to, is that... I to the Kumon with my kids? To oh, the cool. Jukia. Smart. <laughs> I, I, I don't know. I, if I had to do it again, that wouldn't be the way I'd do it. Why do you um, say that? Well, because Kumon um, has you do a lot of reading, mm-hmm. and um, and doesn't, and that's not necessarily the kind of things you'll need to read, like literature and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, so right now, I'm working on um, learning kanji with a program called Wani Kani which mm-hmm. goes through all 2000 Joyo kanji and you do it, you know, it's to me, it's like a game. It's kind of fun. Um, but I've been doing it for two years and I'm there's 60 levels and I'm at level 47. So I'm not done yet, but that has definitely helped improve my reading. So if I had to do it again, I would start with a program like that to learn the kanji. And then I would just practice reading the stuff that you're going to have to read the academic stuff, mm-hmm. which is mostly like emails and, you know, meeting stuff like that. How's your speaking ability in, in committee meetings and that sort of thing? Uh, well, in our department, we can speak English in our meetings. Oh, great. So, uh, and can I understand everything people say? No, um, not everything. So, uh, some, you know, I ask my colleagues what they're saying. Did you take a JLPT test at some point? I have not. Because that's really about kanji reading, right? Mm, yeah. That's instead about your speaking. Um, what, what about in your interview or your inter- yeah. inter- interviews? Uh, can you talk right. about that a little bit? When did when did that did you get the feeling that was a priority? Did they did they say okay, we're going to speak Japanese now in the interview? Uh, what was your experience? Cuz I've I've heard people going for tenure they'll ask you to speak Japanese and then maybe they'll stop you if they, if they think, okay, this person is their Japanese is good enough. Essentially. Is that what you mm. found? You know, when I did my, um, so I, I actually interviewed at two different universities the year I got my, uh, in 2016 when I got the position at Kitakudai and I definitely did my, um, teaching, 
I did my teaching in English. They, I can't really remember if they were talking to me in Japanese for the other part. I can't, I still can't talk about academic stuff in Japanese. I don't. Since Japanese study was never like one of my focuses, it was just something I did on the side. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I'm not, I'm not that good at academic stuff. So if I had to talk about academic stuff, I'd probably switch to English. Um, but in both of those interviews, they asked me to read something in Japanese. Mm-hmm. And so this was after I had done the Kumon, you know, so I had some idea of what I was looking at, but that, you know, boy, my heart really started racing cause I'm not great at reading Japanese. Um, and I, you know, and even if I got, even if I got so I could read most of the kanji, the speed at which I can read in English is light years away from the speed at which I can read in Japanese. So, um, even now I, I mostly use a translation, you know, like I can, in my emails, I can translate that to English or if I get, uh, a digital something, I can just throw it into Google Translate, which is how I usually look at most of my stuff. And for writing little emails, I write that in Japanese. There's a there's a new translator. Uh, yeah. ever, have you heard about it? Deep Deeple. D e e p l e. Yep. No. There's a okay. colleague at mine at Kusandai um, uh, uh, Samar. She she put us all onto it. Okay. Um, yeah check it out. It doesn't, it's not an app. It's just, you have to use it as like a, on a web browser. Yeah. Like Google translate. Yeah. Um, yeah. it's supposed to be amazing. And, um, there's a guy who actually is, is from Russia, speaks Russian. And he said, it's, it, he confirmed it's about 85 to 90% accurate in Russian. And mm-hmm. Nick, Nick Bovey, who you and I both know said it's about 90% accurate in Japanese. Yeah. Um, so that's, that's a, that's a, that's a good one. If people don't know about it, that's a, that's a good one. Okay. Okay. Um, so I guess when you, you, you kind of make a funny joke. I don't know if it was you or Jeff who says, okay, once you get tenure, then, okay, you have nothing else to worry about and it's all, right. it's all good. Um, and, and yeah. you mentioned you're the kind of person, I think it was, I don't know if it was you or Jeff section. You're the type of person that you like the structure where there is a little bit of pressure to publish. I I'm kind of the same yeah. way. Uh-huh. Um, what, 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 what are the what are the sort of guidelines for you? Are you, do you have to publish something like once a year in the Kyo? Do you have to apply for a Kakenhi every, every year? Is it, does that vary between schools? Are you, you're at a public university, right? Kitakushi. Right. Yeah. Are, yeah. They, are all the public university tenure jobs have the same sort of guidelines for, for tenure? That I couldn't, I couldn't say because I haven't been at any other university on tenure. This is my first tenured university. Maybe my last um, <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> we have to apply for a cock in every three years. I know my husband's the same at Kitakushi, at Kudai. He has to apply for a cock in every three years, um, at least. And, but really then the only other, uh, the only other pressure would be, and it's not much of a pressure would be that what I mentioned that you could get a little bonus if, if you know, if the chair or the, the, the Dean thought you were like doing exceptionally well and your publications could be part of that. But I think since I've written that, I've seen that they don't, at least at my university, they don't really distinguish between an international journal and the Keo. I see. So, um, what, what, what do you, what's your mindset on that? Are you still pushing to go international or are you you happy to publish in the Kyo at this point? Oh, well, I would, I would like my work to be seen by other people. So mm-hmm. I'm interested in, in international journals. <laughs> yeah. Got it. Yeah. yeah I, I heard that, uh, Nick, Nick kind of told me that, um, Nick Bovey, he said that, you know, some, some places in Japan, they, they really, uh, they really don't mind if most of your articles are in Kyo's. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Right. No, when I was, um, I, there was some issue. Oh, I think when they were, you know, uh, you have to get, when you want to teach graduate students, you have to prove that you have enough publications and that sort of thing. And, um, one of my colleagues was talking to me and he said, oh, okay, well, I guess you have a book. So that counts for a lot of articles. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, but, but, you know, he, he he brought up someone else's record and you know that person had like 30 articles and i was like but they're all in the keo 
<laughs> so, uh, so anyway, I, I, I was, I had enough publications to become, you know, get on the graduate faculty, but to them, it didn't seem to make a difference where it was published. So, yeah, I wanted to ask you about that. So are you, are you a PhD advisor now? Um, uh, yeah, yeah, actually I do have a PhD student, um, right now, just, just one. Um, and you know, if, I were talking to someone who wanted to get a PhD. I think if you can do it long, you know, if you can do it in a university, like probably like you're doing in Australia, right? Macquarie. Mm. Yeah. Um, I think you'll have, you, obviously you would have a lot larger set of professors you can take from. I mean, when you get a PhD, you kind of want to have a, a good, you know, a good sampling of people who are experts in different areas. Mm-hmm. So at Pitt, I guess I had two professors who were experts in SLA, and then there was a sociolinguist, you know, and a historical linguist and that sort of thing. So when you're taking the classes, you're taking those classes with experts. Now, in Japan, it's a little bit different. You spend a lot more time with your advisor. You take a class every semester with your advisor, and you don't necessarily have as rounded, I would say, of a, of an education. So you kind of, you focus more on just that area that you're interested in. So if someone were to go to my, come to my university and, you know, be my PhD student, I think that they're getting a good education in SLA, but they would miss out on, you know, some of the, you know, the other, uh, specialties, now, Jeff said something that if you're planning on living in Japan for the rest of your life, it's okay to get a PhD at a Japanese university. Yeah. Um, but if you, if you want to get a, you know, a job somewhere outside of Japan, so there's a colleague of mine who's actually doing a PhD at uh, Kumamoto, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and then again, Jeff recommended if you want to go that route, maybe I should contact you at Kitakyushu. Mm-hmm. Um, so I guess if people want to, it's sort of a, it's it's definitely a cheaper option, right? Sure. If you don't yeah. if you don't have a TA or anything, it's it's much cheaper to get a PhD. What do, what are your views on that? Are you, is that kind of aligned with Jeff that if you're planning on staying in Japan and you can't afford or you can't get a scholarship outside? Because I mean, I think Nick Bovey, he's his university's in England, and it's quite right. expensive. Right. Um. What what are your yeah. do, do you ever get people ask you for advice about something like that? Um. I don't know that people ask me, but I would, I would say the same thing. Yeah. If you wanted to teach in the UK or the United States, then you would want to get a degree from a, from a, a, not a Japanese university. Like, cause like I say, you just wouldn't get the depth of a specialty in that department. Right. Um, but, but yeah, but my, my PhD student now, she's Japanese with excellent English and, you know, she wants to work in Japan. So, um, she, she did go to the UK for a year for a master's program, but you know, this will be good for her. So I think there's, I mean, I'm so ha- I'm happy to have her. It's fun to work with her and, um, but it would be, yeah, it, it works for her, but it wouldn't work for everyone. What are your responsibilities? Are you the head of a committee or are you the only tenured foreigner in, in the department? Oh, uh, no. How, how, like how many coma do you teach? And do you, do you teach mostly with um, undergrad? You also, you also do, you said you have a PhD student. Are you teaching master's students as well? Uh, I could. Yeah, I teach, I teach classes um, for graduate students. And um, my, my basic, they pay us extra for that. Oh. Okay. It's kind of weird. It's not like the American system. So my basic teaching load is five coma per semester. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I'm not, at first I started out doing some English classes, but now I mostly teach content classes. Um, so introduction linguistics and phonetics, phonology, history of English language, and, um, I'll be teaching SLA. And then in our university, we have uh, a Zemi, uh, which I really didn't know what that was, but it's basically, um, your undergraduates kind of specialize in some area of research that the, with the professor, with a certain professor. 
So our university has a two-year ZEMI system. So as third-year students, they choose their ZEMI, and they come in. And so we've got them for uh, one class a semester for four semesters, and they write a thesis at the end. Hmm. Well, I'm just looking at your, your Google uh, Scholar list. I'm just I'm having trouble finding exactly what your specialty is. It seems <laughs> like you're, you're very diverse. I mean, you wrote a book on statistics, like you said. Yeah. You wrote a book on second language acquisition. Yeah. Um, you got a book, Japanese speakers of Russian. Uh, do you do you have a focus, or is this sort of this is kind of what excites you? You like to you, you have a lot of interests. I mean, I mean, this is like seriously. Like some people, like Jeff was saying, okay, it's really good to focus on one thing, and you can kind of be the expert in the field. Yeah. Um, the, yeah. But you're it sounds it's it's intimidating to do what you're doing, but I could see how it's more interesting to, but, but you, I, I don't think I could do it because I, you know, my brain's not big enough. Are you, are you kind of interested in doing different things or, or did you have an idea where you should focus on something or did this sort of come about naturally where you're, you're writing books in different subjects, which is, seems very, very difficult. Hmm. Um, well, my, PhD dissertation was three different experiments having to do with phonology. Okay. So I would say when I graduated, I thought I would be a specialist in phonology. And that's what I published some articles in. But then, remember, they told me I had to write the book. Yeah. And I did not think I could write a book about phonology. So then I chose statistics. And then people thought I was an expert in statistics which I'm not. Um, I just maybe know more about it than other people in second language acquisition. Um, yeah. And, you know, I really, I, I do admire those people who have like a research focus and they really drill down in that area. I think that's great. Um, I just, I just did other things, you know, and I mean, I think that's the beauty of academia is you can follow your bliss. You can do stuff you're interested in. Um, so I can't remember why I wrote that SLA book, but it was fun. <laughs> well, what are you, what are you working on now? What's your focus now? Um, well, so I, I had this exchange year off, right. And I had so many plans for what I was going to work on. Um, I mean, I've become interested in vocabulary because of my, because of my graduate students. Um, and maybe because of Jeff and Luke who got me interested in, like they had the vocabulary, they were organizing the vocabulary SIGs, special interest groups. Um, so I've done some work on that. And, um, I, anyway, I had, I, I was, I, I'm, I became really interested in issues of age, but I was interested in that already. I, I was, uh, I, I have a co-authored, I w let's just say Robert D. Kaiser asked me to help him out with a chapter he was writing about, uh, this, the critical period hypothesis. And I became interested in the effects of age on second language acquisition. So, hmm. um, but I was interested in looking at kind of case studies of people who learned languages and forgot them. I had a question like, what if, what if you had kids? So I always wanted my kids to be bilingual Me and too. I thought at what <laughs> are they? Uh, my daughter. So I only have one, I have one daughter and, uh, uh -huh. she, I, I took her back to America, to America uh, for a month. Just, just she and I. Yeah, and it just boosted considerably. Now I have a lot of confidence. Yeah. If I just keep doing that, obviously I can't yeah. do it this year. Um, yeah. I I don't think she's not bilingual like Nick Bovey, uh, right? But Nick Bovey is strange because he he lived in Japan for three years, went to America, lived there, you know, graduated university. I guess yeah. he studied Japanese in the university, came back. So uh -huh. I don't know. I I always thought there's no real bilingual until I met Nick Bovey because his English <laughs> his English is better than mine. Uh-huh. <laughs> and he, I can see him switch without effort. That's yeah. the biggest thing I noticed with yeah. him. Um, yeah. I don't know. Sorry. Go ahead. Um, so, so, so I wanted to know, like, what age could you take a kid, immerse them in that language, some other language for two or three years, 
pull them out, you know, as if you were like dipping them into a vat of chocolate and that they would be, you know, yeah, the perfect bilingual. Mm. So uh, I became interested in kind of doing case studies about people who had those sort of interesting histories, like linguistic histories. But I haven't published any of them. So I was going to work on that during my year off. Um, but by the way, the answer is, <laughs> the answer is eight to 10. Uh, oh, really? that, that's my, that's my answer, but that's my answer. That would, that's old enough. That's young enough that maybe seven to 10 young enough that they'd be able to benefit from their brain sort of automatically parsing everything, but old enough that they would remember it when you took them out. Cause if you take them out, like if you say three to six, mm. they'll get good at the language, but then. It seems like just from my case studies I've looked at uh, that they'll just forget it. Mm. And if you do it, you know, too much later than 10, they're probably they're they're not going to be at the place where they're automatically acquiring the language without having to consciously think about it anymore. Mm. But but I mean, I've raised four bilingual kids. And what I can tell you is, well, number one, it's a lot of work. And number two, (laughs) um, there's really no such thing as two monolinguals in one person. So when you say uh, Nick is is the the first real bilingual you meet, I mean that's what people mean when they say bilingual. They want to say, well, they're exactly like a monolingual in both of their languages. Right. Exactly. And yeah, and that and that basically doesn't happen. Um, I mean, I'm sure Nick is smart, um, and he probably comes off, you know, very well in both languages. But if you asked him, I'm guessing, but I don't know. But most of the time, if you ask those people who sound really great in both languages to you, they'll be like, oh, no, but my vocabulary is not as big as my brother's who, you know, who's just only speaks English or whatever, you know. Like they're going to see a lack in their own language. Right. So, uh, so, so that's what I've learned from raising my kids. Um, and anyway, I was, so it's really, um, so, so I was going to work on a lot of different things this year, but then the pandemic hit and, um, and then I kind of didn't want to do anything anymore. I don't know if you felt that way, but, um, (laughs) well, I started the podcast. (laughs) There you go. (laughs) I I thought, um, it's a good chance to start a podcast because, because people have less excuse, uh, to not say no. Right. <laughs> They're just sitting at home. You can't say that you're, I'm away at this time. I'm busy. I'm at a conference. Um, <laughs> just it's just a great way to trap people. With no pants on. Right. So, <laughs> no, I have pants on today. I dressed up for you. Oh, um, thank you. No. Uh, so I, I, one of my projects that I started was a memoir and that's why I'm saying it's embarrassing because, you know, am I so arrogant to think I should write a memoir? But, um, I was talking about my adopting my kids and, uh, you know, places I've lived and stuff like that to some people at the AAAL conference. And they're like, you're fascinating. Actually it was Kendall King. If you've heard of her, who's written like a, a, a popular paperback about language acquisition. She said, she said, you should write a book. I'll get you in touch with my publisher. And I was like, huh, hmm, maybe, yeah. So I started writing that and um, I'm almost done and wow. I've been having a great time with it. <laughs> That's cool. It, sa- it, sounds, it sounds like you, you're... It's strange. I guess some people set out to write books. It sounds like books come to you. Come to me. Well, there you. That's interesting. I guess they do. <laughs> well, um, the book we talked about today was "Teaching English at Japanese Universities: A New Handbook," and the chapter was "Making a Career of University Teaching in Japan: Getting and Keeping a Full-Time Job." We've mm. already gone past an hour, so maybe um, last last question, which I like to ask okay. everyone: Do you have any advice for up and coming? academics, uh, writers, um, any tips you've, 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 you've found or, or mistakes you made along the way as far as, as far as time management or how you write, um, like just, just any, anything you can share for people that maybe Hmm. are struggling with their writing or struggling with their research or struggling with their teaching or their Japanese and anything that sort of like helped, helped you sort of, you know, get to where you are. 
have kids. <laughs> um, I, like I said, I've adopted four kids and all of my kids have taught me a lot about teaching. Obviously I've mm. experimented on them when it comes to language. Um, my kids and I have talked about how we think people who have kids are better teachers because, um, I know myself, I'm just, I'm kind of a judgmental person. Mm. Um, and they've really expanded my vision of life. Um, and so when I, I remember in grad school, I had a professor, I, I, I looked around me and it didn't seem like any of my professors had kids. And I was like, can you not succeed as an academic if you have kids? Um, and uh, I think I proved that that's not true. You can you can have kids and succeed. But I, my husband's also an academic and we were, had really flexible schedules that way. Well, that's 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 great advice. I, I can, you know, empathize with that uh, in some ways, because when you have your alone time, it's just you, yeah. cher- you cherish it so much. So you have you, to be productive. You can really get a lot done, and mm-hmm. you almost sometimes enjoy going to work. It's funny. I <laughs> I actually like kids less after I had my kid. I felt oh, like, yeah. I felt like I used to like kids, and I I thought it'd be nice to have a kid, and I like my kid. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I guess you see what I'm saying. I, I don't think I could saying. ever teach elementary school. Let's just say that. <laughs> no, me neither. <laughs> uh, well, thank you. Thank you so much for your time. And, uh, just, I get real quick. Um, where, where, where are you living now? If you're teaching at Kitakushi mm-hmm. and your husband's teaching at Kudai? We live in, in Nishiku near the international school because our kids are going to school there. Oh, they are. Okay. Wow. Well, they that were. could, that could be a, a second part of the podcast talking about that. <laughs> Uh, yeah. Well, uh, thank thank you so much, Doctor Larson Hall, and uh, enjoy enjoy your uh, rainy day weather and not going to conferences this year. Okay. Thanks, Jonathan. Great to talk to you. Thank you again for listening to today's episode. If you'd like to contact the show, please send us an email: lostincitations at gmail dot com. Please like us on Facebook: facebook dot com slash lostincitations. It also helps greatly if you share the show on your social media platform of choice. And if you're feeling extra generous, please leave us a five-star rating and favorable review on iTunes. This will help us tremendously. One final thing, and maybe most important, if you enjoy listening to the show, please tell a friend or colleague. People often talk about their favorite podcasts, so let people know that you're listening. Thanks again, and we'll talk to you next week.